Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Sorry we're two minutes-ish late. The left, prompt as ever. One of our many, one of our many skills, I would say. Our many talents being prompt. Now, the Ford Report, long-awaited, uh, which was an investigation, I suppose, into what you could call pretty grotesque factional manoeuvrings within the Labour Party. I think I'm being euphemistic here. It followed a leaked report, which many of you may remember, in 2020. A leaked report written by some very courageous Labour staffers. We will talk about them and pay tribute to them, which exposed shocking behaviour by Labour officials under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Now, Starmer's leadership was forced to commission a report by QC, or led by QC, Martin Ford. Now, I have to say hands up, I was expecting a whitewash. Now, the reason I was expecting a whitewash is often there is little justice in this world. Um, and in politics in particular, justice is often, so, so such as it is, isn't justice at all. It's about the exercise of power. Who's got power? Who doesn't? Uh, that's how narratives are formed. Uh, that's, you know, in terms of how, you know, people are, how people, it's judged how people can be exiled into outer darkness while people who, I don't know, commit war crimes against Iraq, uh, they they can be glorified um, uh, whilst others are obviously condemned uh, for, for political reasons, shall we say. It wasn't a whitewash. Now, there might be problems with it. We'll talk about that. We'll have a nuanced discussion. But it did expose outrageous, outrageous behaviour by Labour officials under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. By outrageous, what do I mean? I mean racism. I mean, discriminatory attitudes and practice. I mean, the wrongful diversion of electoral funds, for example, during the 2017 election. Now, there's a lot to say. There's a lot to say about this report. And we've got two brilliant guests. And we're going to go into detail about what the report says, about what it represents. And also, I suppose, what it means for the Labour Party and its direction under the leadership of Keir Starmer who, it must be said, ran the most deceitful leadership campaign for any political party in the history of British democracy. If anyone can find another example that's more deceitful, do get in touch. Love to hear. People sometimes say Boris Johnson wasn't deceitful his leadership campaign, was it? I mean, what he promised was terrible. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Uh, the politics, the policy, horrific. But it would be like him rejoining the single market after his leadership campaign calling for a hard Brexit. That's what we're talking about in terms of dishonesty. But we're going to talk about what, how, I suppose, what this represents for the internal conflict within the Labour Party. Now, later on, we have um, the brilliant Rachel Shabby, um, my friend, and the brilliant journalist and writer. And we're going to be talking about various issues, not least particularly, actually, racism. And I think that's extremely important and what the Forge Report says about that. Um, but we're about to be joined as well by the brilliant Alex Nunn, who actually works with Jeremy Corbyn, but many of you may know him as well as an author, as a writer and so on, um, as a journalist, very long-standing journalist. Um, now, before we start, as ever, um, do support us on patreon.com forward slash 84 You keep the show on the road. Uh, you can support the show using Super Chat, which also puts questions to the guests. If you're watching, I know watch, lots of you watch on Facebook or Twitter, however much I say to click through to YouTube, but... If you do want to click through to YouTube instead of Facebook or watching it on Twitter, that's great. Uh, it, press like and subscribe when you get through to YouTube. Do leave a comment. We like seeing your comments. Um, and also, of course, this is a podcast, so listen to it on the podcast and leave a review. Haven't got the cats in with me this time. Did try doing that last week, and they disconnected the entire system with pretty catastrophic consequences. Very cute. Also very annoying. Um, they are, of course, called Rickman and Kia. Kia named after Kia Hardy, the first leader of the Labour Party. Um, I say that just because whenever I post it on Instagram, people are like, why are you named after Keir Starmer? I haven't. Keir Starmer was named after Keir Hardy and obviously has disgraced his name under his leadership. 
Anyway, just before I bring in uh, Alex, let's just have a quick look at this clip by a Labour councillor. This is, I should say, before I start, just to put it in this context, there's been very little media coverage of this report. Very little media coverage. And the reason that's kind of shocking, I know there's a lot going on. There's been a lot been going on generally in the world for the last few years, which has been on fire, actually quite literally at the moment. Um, if this had been a report exposing similar behaviour by the left, oh, the media would be all over it. It would be outrage and shock. It'd be front page news. But obviously, the left are not treated as legitimate political actors. It's seen as good politics by the media commentariat to bully and viciously attack and marginalise the left, to, to lie your way into marginalising them, which is what the current leadership has done. That seems good politics within the media ecosystem in which we live. So the fact there's been very little um, uh, coverage of it, I made a, I did a Twitter thread about this actually, just pointing out why so many political commentators um, have refused, I suppose, to talk about this report. And the reason is, if we, I might just bring it up just quickly, the reason is partly, um, if you look at, obviously, the politics of uh, much of the lobby journalists, they are often very politically, naturally sympathetic uh, to, to, the, to the Labour right. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're very closely knit circles in terms of in Westminster. It upset their understanding of politics, the Corbyn era, it turned their understanding of the political universe upside down. Many of the political contacts they'd courted during their career became irrelevant. They had, as I said, similar politics to the Labour right. They're often personal friends with right-wing Labour politicians, drinking sessions, dinner parties, sometimes holidays, some closer than that. What was the point of having a bet Cooper and Ed Balls around for doing anymore? Not going to get any insights about the Labour Party anymore. That annoyed them. Some cut their teeth in student politics where they developed a personal animosity towards the left. They resented the criticisms of the media made by people associated with the Corbyn leadership and then went out of their way to confirm them anyway. Some just hated being criticised by left-wing people on Twitter. Do not underestimate how petty some of these people are, which they use to portray themselves as victims. Oh, we're being criticised on Twitter. It's so hard. Oh, God, just because we write horrible, vicious things to the mainstream media about people who have very little voice except on social media, now they can speak back. Yeah, that's what they do. Really unpleasant people, a lot of them. I've known, I've been around the Labour Party for two decades. I'm just, I've said it, I said it on Twitter. Some of the worst people I've ever met, not in politics, not in politics, generally are these people. We're talking Gareth Keenan without the charm. We're talking people with a puffed up sense of self-importance, which is not in any way commensurate with their political skills or talents. They think they're in the West Wing, they're in a Benny Hill sketch. You know, these are people who... Who, you know, whatever you think about New Labour, it was actually founded by substantial people with actually some sort of intellectual hinterland, came out of Marxism today, this weird Eurocommunist publication. They had some sort of world of human vision. These people have nothing. Anyway, run over. Let me put Martin Abrams on. Well, what this report shows is, is so much more than just factionalism. You know, what Martin Ford QC has found is that a right-wing faction uh, at the very top of Labour HQ rather than respect the democratic mandate, the two democratic mandates that Jeremy Corbyn got in 2015 and 2016 on a platform of anti-austerity, of public ownership of our services and utilities, rather than accept that, they set about trying to uh, burn down the house. And some of the findings in this report are absolutely scandalous. You know, uh, you know, diverting funds away from winnable target seats in the 2017 election to uh, to allies within their own faction, for example, or examples, and we've all seen the WhatsApp messages, examples of overt anti-black racism directed towards some of our most senior MPs. You know, some of the findings in this are absolutely repug repugnant and it is incumbent on the leader of the Labour Party now, Keir Starmer, to take firm and affirmative action and not just shelve this and let it gather dust like it has been for the last two years. That was one of the only pieces of media coverage that the report got, actually, on the BBC. Martin Abrams, actually, lovely guy. Personal childhood friend of my brother back in Sheffield, randomly. Lovely fella. Anyway, let's bring in Alex Nunns, the brilliant writer and former staffer under Jamie Corbyn. Hello, how are you doing? I am fine. How are you? It is what it is. Alex, were you surprised by the report? Um, I was surprised that it... it basically vindicated all of the left's key claims about the Corbyn era. I wasn't surprised that there are some flaws with the report, especially the way it's kind of framed 
everything has to be both sides, you know, both sides are responsible in different ways. Um, that is what I expected it to, to do effectively. I, I expected it to kind of try to diffuse the situation and spread the blame um, as wide as it could. But the thing is, the report contains within it all the evidence of all of the claims, well, a lot of the claims anyway, that the left has made over the past few years. Um, and, you know, the key thing is it vindicates the leaked report, which is what it was actually um, commissioned to look into. The, the leaked report, you viewers may know, was commissioned under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, um, intended to be submitted to the EHRC when they were doing their report. It was never submitted to the EHRC, and then it got into the public domain via means we don't know. Um, and it contained all this inflammatory stuff, you know, the, the WhatsApp groups of the senior Labour Party staff under Ian McNichol, when staff in Labour's HQ were, were viscerally opposed to, to the left and to Jeremy Corbyn and to the, you know, the majority of the members of the Labour Party. Um, and those WhatsApp groups, for example, this is one way that Ford's very useful, those WhatsApp groups had been, or those WhatsApp messages had been dismissed as selective, or, you know, you've taken them out of context, you've presented them in a certain way, it's a factional um, attack. Um, Martin Ford in the report says they're not taken out of context, you know, you can't possibly print all of the all of the WhatsApp messages and have a readable document, but um, he looks at what the authors of the leaked report did and says, you know, they've, they've represented them fairly. So now we know that all the things that we saw senior Labour Party staff saying, you know, from, as you say, attacking Diane Abbott to um, expressing disappointment at the result of the 2017 general election, um, are have been fairly represented. And that that is what um, that was the prevailing attitude um, in Labour HQ. Um, it also um, shows it, it basically confirms that those same staff um, systematically and well in a very in a very covert and um, uh, shameless way diverted funds in the 2017 election from um, from the strategy that was being pursued by the elected leadership responsible for running an election campaign to MPs they favoured who happened to be anti-Corbyn MPs in various parts of the country. This was an unauthorised um, uh, moving of more than £100,000 of you know, money donated by members, members of the public and trade unions. Um, and that was that was the, an explosive revelation in the original leaked report, which, you know, as, as you said, because it, it vindicated the left was not reported in the mainstream press. But now we have um, the Ford report coming down and saying, yes, this this did actually happen. Um, and it shows that the extent of the factionalism from the, the opponents of, of, um, of Jeremy Corbyn and, and the left in the Labour Party was just extreme, you know, to, to, uh, to kind of unhinged uh, extent. So, so, yeah, I think it's very important for, for those reasons. Let's just, in fact, see, you've just referred, obviously, to various aspects of the report. So let's, let's just look at this. So this is in the report. Um, about the leaked messages, which were just horrendous leaked messages. I have to say, some um, so-called centrist journalists were like, oh, well, who doesn't speak like this in WhatsApp messages? It's like, mm, telling yourself there, are you? I'm not in WhatsApp groups where people speak like this. Yeah, so it's, it says, the report, it's been put to us by a number of witnesses that the extracts of the messages quoted in the leaked report were cherry-picked and selectively edited, such that the quotes appear in the leaked report are both unrepresentative and misleading. Having reviewed the transcripts and considered evidence from many of those involved, we do not agree. We find that the uh, messages on the SMT, senior management team, WhatsApp, reveal deplorably factional and insensitive and at times discriminatory attitudes expressed by, member, by many of the party's most senior staff. Now, additionally, it says it talks about the undoubted avert and underlying racism and sexism apparent in, the, in some of the content of the WhatsApp messages between the party's most senior uh, staff. So it actually specifically talked about that. And it directly talks, of course, about the treatment of and the the attitudes expressed towards Diane Abbott, who, as we know, is the first elected female black politician in Britain who's been subjected to extremely intense and orchestrated sexism and racism throughout her political life, um, as well as Carrie Murphy, who, of course, was the chief of staff under Jamie Corbyn for a period um, in terms of sexism. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is interesting because again, you know, when we talk, when we talk about kind of these messages, some of them may have Googled them or looked at them. 
But I mean, having worked within the Labour Party, I mean, I know you worked in the in the leader's office, and actually, I think you started after the people in Southside Labour HQ had left, who were responsible. But I mean, what does it say about the culture of the Labour right if you say these messages, if you like these messages? Well, I, well, there's one thing which is very important about the cult, about talking about the culture of the Labour right because the world is on its head. If you remember during the entire Corbyn period, it was the left that was accused of being bullies and abusive and, you know, a mob. You know, we were supposed to be going to surround Stella Creasy's house or something. We, we, in the mainstream press, we were always presented, the left in general, as the kind of upstart bullies, the nasty people who, who all um, throw abuse at, at their opponents um, as compared to the legitimate in, um, forces of, you know, the status quo who were just passive victims and, and couldn't do anything about this horrible mob who came up from underneath. The leaked report shows that in actual fact, it's the right, it's the Labour right who had this really quite extraordinarily nasty culture, which they all seemed, it's not just that a few people posted some nasty messages, you know, there's some nasty message, really nasty messages about, for example, Max Shanley, where they say he hope, they hope he dies in a fire and um, this is a young Labour Party member. Um, and there's, you know, countless examples. Senior staff, Carrie Murphy, is called a bitch-faced cow and they want to use her face as a dartboard, all this. This is really, really extreme stuff. It's not just normal, um, you know, jokes and, and rude um, comments. This is really visceral hatred. Um, and it's not isolated. And it's not that other people come in and say, well, steady on a bit. Nobody does. They're, they're, these messages are just kind of accepted as the norm of how they communicate and how they interact and their attitudes towards... Um, people who are in the same political party as them you know um and so you you have to you have to say that that the attitude that that reveals is not just important in, in a, of itself it also um informs the the actions the solid actions that these staff members took if that's what they thought of, of the other side of their party then it's really not very surprising that they then were um pleased that um when Labour was doing badly under Jeremy Corbyn or mortified when the 2017 election result came in better than expected. So, so these things, um, these things just point to a, a culture where for that part of the Labour Party, the Labour right, factionalism is their driving force. That's their main thing. They hate the left. They're probably in politics because they hate the left. They came up through student politics where the job they thought they were doing was to attack the left and exclude the left. And they've carried those attitudes on, I suppose. Although I don't want to do psychoanalysis on them, um, to you know, to to the top of the Labour Party, um, and that's you know that's laid bare in this report like never before. They they, uh, they called me an asshole. I'm very sensitive in the uh, Labour officials in 2015. Badge of honour, but you know it was very low down the list of abuse given uh, the actual horrific abuse others suffered. Let's just talk about Ergon. This is the diversion of electoral funds. So, some senior, this is the report, I'm quoting from the report for those listening. Some senior HQ staff had the ability to implement resourcing decisions covertly. A handful of staff in Ergon House created an additional fund for printing costs under code GEL001, spending some £135,000 in total on campaign supportive of sitting largely anti-Corbyn MPs and not on campaigns for pro-Corbyn candidates in potentially Tory winnable seats. Uh, did H ask, did HQ staff pursue the defensive strategy with sufficient transparency. We find that the decision to set up the Ergon House operation covertly and divert money and personnel there without authority, the campaign committee, whilst not illegal, departed from the approved strategy. It was as such wrong. I mean, yeah, that point there about, I mean, obviously he's a lawyer, so, you know, he's talking about, you know, I mean, it's like tax avoidance, tax evasion, isn't it? Like tax avoidance is legal, but it's it's obviously egregious and wrong, and and it's kind of similar, isn't it? So just talk talk through that diversion, what what that kind of represents and signifies. Well, in the twenty seventeen election, at the beginning of the election campaign, Labour was about twenty five points behind in the worst poll um, when Theresa May called the election, and so um, to begin with, the staff in Labour HQ, whose job it was to organise, you know, Labour's electoral forces, um, pursued a defensive strategy where they were thinking we're going to get smashed, so let's just hold on to as many seats as we can. That's perfectly fine. That's rational. That's what they advised. It's historically unprecedented for a political party to increase its vote as much as Labour then did under Corbyn in 2017 during the course of an election campaign. You know, you can move the polls like two or three percent in an election campaign normally. Uh, in 2017 under Corbyn, the polls moved massively. The Tories closed that 25 percent gap, 25 point gap to, to one. So um, so this was that was the context. 
Now, what happened during that campaign is the Labour's poll ratings immediately went up and then eventually the Tories started to come down. And um, the manifesto was leaked. Remember, it was the best coverage for any manifesto ever because it was a saga. Um, people saw all these policies, which the press said, you know, horrific. They're going to nationalise the railways. It's returned to the 1970s. And people thought that sounds pretty good. And so, um, and so Labour was shooting up. Now, at this point, Jeremy Corbyn's staff in Lotto and Jeremy who were in charge of electoral strategy, the, the elected leadership, it's their job to say this is what we're going to do. They wanted the Labour Party to start targeting Tory marginal seats and be much more offensive and say, no, we'll, you know, things are turning around. We can actually make some gains. We can actually make some ground here. And the Labour Party machine, the, the staff, the same staff who were exchanging these WhatsApp messages, they resisted that. They said no. They, they thought, you know, these the signs of improvement are, are nonsense. They were basing a lot of their rationale was based on the internal polling Labour had, which was by the most pessimistic pollster um, that existed. Um, and, so, and so this became a, a conflict between HQ and between um, Lotto. Now, what, um, within that, what happened was some staff, presumably sanctioned at the very highest level, um, well, we know it was sanctioned by Amy Nicol, so that's the very highest level. They started to divert um, funds from the agreed, democratically agreed, you know, um, democratically devised election strategy to um, what Ford describes in his report, in his report, as anti-Corbyn MPs, and they and they wouldn't send funds to these extra funds. They wouldn't send them to um, to pro-Corbyn candidates. Um, and this is something that the people in Lotto knew was happening, or they, they suspected was happening. Um, but it, the, when the leaks report came out, um, just after Keir Stun was elected leader, the full extent of it was revealed for the first time. And we know that this was an actual operation that staff were running based in Ergon House, which is where the London Labour Party was um, based. Um, and they were consciously defying the leadership in order to prop up these MPs and you know money was was diverted to the likes of Tom Watson to Rachel Reeves um to Bridget Phillips and to a lot of the, the people who are in the, the shadow cabinet right now and many of them were in quite safe seats and when you actually look into it this is where I would disagree with Ford because Ford Ford presents this as well it wasn't done in bad faith although he he agrees it was done and he says it was unequivocally wrong but he thinks that it was done because they genuinely thought a defensive strategy was necessary but that doesn't actually stand up when you look at the specific seats where this, where the extra support went. For example, in 2017, Labour lost uh, for only five seats. I mean, we obviously made gains overall, but there were five seats that within that Labour lost uh, that transferred to the Tories. If it's true that Labour HQ was purely interested in, the, in a defensive strategy, then those five seats should have been flooded with resources. These were the ones that were actually under threat. Um, and they weren't. They, uh, um, seats like Stoke-on-Trent, um, South, I think, and Walton North, um, did not receive all these extra resources where you would want them to go. So this uh, this argument that it was a minded strategy just doesn't stand up. And you can see what was actually happening because you can look at the names of the MPs who received mm. this extra campaigning money, which was done secretly against what the leadership wanted. And you can see that they're all the same people who are regularly in the media attacking Corbyn, who the staff who were doing this wanted to be the nucleus of the of the um the new shadow cabinet after the left was wiped out and forced out of the party and etc 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 so that's what um that's what was going on that's what this is revealed the the money i mean for example Lemma mccluskey said he's outraged because a lot of the money was donated by unite and Unite had no idea that it was being diverted into these other mps it's an absolute abuse of of the, the campaigning efforts and resources that members put into the party to have this secret strategy being done by people who are completely unelected. They, they had no mandate to do this whatsoever. They were just trying to protect their mates. And the complacency with which that's been met by both the media and by Keir Starmer, who hasn't really um, said anything about it, is, is quite astonishing. Here you've got a major political, one of the two political parties in the UK that can form a government, and you've got completely unelected people operating a different electoral strategy against the elected mandate of the leader. And everyone's just like, oh, whatever. I mean, just further on that, what the report says is the conviction that the end of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, be it brought about by the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, or electoral disaster, would be good for the party, underpinned and was reinforced by the WhatsApp discussions. It seems to us indisputable that it gave rise to a conflict of interests. 
Now, so, I mean, that, that obviously just underlines what you just said. In terms of, furthermore, and I think this is really interesting as well, there's something, basically, they call it trot hunt. Was it trot hunt? Something trot like hunting, that. Yeah. Trot spotting. Trot spotting. I mean, basically, look, to be clear, the, the definition of trot that used by these people is, and when I say anyone to the left of Gordon Brown, I mean literally because that's what the WhatsApp discussions revealed. They actually called anyone to the that they, so one of them openly said essentially that anyone to the left of Gordon Brown was a trot. Um, as a child of two Trotskyists, uh, Trotskyism is a very specific ideology with only a very small few thousand people in Britain who would probably be described as active uh, Trotskyists rather than the hundreds of thousands who joined the Labour Party in 2015 and 2016. Um, but actually, the point actually makes the report, I think this is quite interesting. <clears throat> in our view, however, this was, this is so-called, this is the weeding out of people based on often social media posts, basically, who are left-wing in the leadership contest. In our view, however, this was by and large a factually slanted exercise designed and carried out with a startling lack of transparency and carried out, um, uh, oh, sorry, which had the goal of undermining Jeremy Corbyn's chances uh, in the leadership elections. It cemented distrust of moti the motives of HQ staff in Lotto, that's the leader's office, is also embedded in extremely damaging conviction amongst parts of the membership that the party's disciplinary system was rigged against them. Um, this allowed the false idea that complaints of anti-Semitism were being fabricated as part of a witch hunt. Um, it goes on to say, moreover, the extent of this validation exercise for trot spotting, in quotes, depends on your, depending on your factional point of view, was undoubtedly demanding on time and priorities of several uh, GLU staff, that's governments and legal unit, and that's in charge of disciplinary matters. In that sense, it seems to us at least to a degree that it's correct to assert that it did divert GLU staff from its focus on complaints and disciplinary action on anti-Semitism and other disciplinary cases. So actually, what it's saying here is the amount of time and resources that went into weeding out people who were left-wing from the membership distracted, and this was by Labour officials opposed to Corbyn, distracted from, for example, putting in time and resources to deal with people alleged to have made anti-Semitic comments. Yeah, and that's really clear from the leaked report as well. But basically, the, what he's talking about there is the two leadership elections, 2015-2016, um, when the same staff who would deal with complaints, including anti-Semitism anti complaints, were spending all their time, literally all their time, um, trying to find people who were left-wing by searching through their Twitter or their Facebook and um, excluding them from voting, taking their votes away. Um, so desperate were they that, that Jeremy Corbyn didn't win. But And remember, th these are staff who are supposed to be a neutral civil service. This isn't, there's nothing legitimate about this at all. It's not their job to, to skew a leadership election. It, the members can elect who they want to, to be the leader of their party. Um, and it's not for the staff to stop them. But these staff decided it was, it was their job to go trot hunting, as they called it, um, and spend all their time doing that. And in a leaked report, you see that for those periods, you know, anti some anti-Semitism complaints started to build up. The, the quantity of complaints wasn't as big then as it became later, but still, they completely neglected that work. And I think that um, it's kind of galling, really, when when you think of uh, the way that the way that the same some of those same staff actually. Um, uh, present the issue of anti-Semitism and thinking in, in Panorama, for example, the famous Panorama episode is Labour anti-Semitic. Um, you would think from the way that they present it that this was an issue of, of real um, passion for them, of real, you know, a moral line in the sand and so on, and that this is the, the major thing and, and that their job was to deal with anti-Semitism. Well, um, that would be good, but um, it seems that trot hunting was more important. Just, I mean, we'll, I'm, I'm going to speak to Rachel Chabby shortly about issues of anti-Semitism and of racism within the Labour Party and what the report tells us about all these issues. One thing that I think is really important in the report is it speaks. So this is the issue about alleged interference by the leader's office um, into disciplinary matters. And this was really at the heart of the, what you've already mentioned, the Panorama uh, documentary is Labour anti-Semitic. Um, now I don't normally do this, but there was a clip. I went on, I remember this, uh, that whole period, me and Ash Sarkar went on radio and TV in the aftermath of Panorama. Wasn't the most fun I've ever had, I have to say. Um, but the reason I'm just going to bring up this little clip of, I don't normally put clips of myself on <laughs> because it's kind of weird, um, behavior. Uh, and I know I get criticized on this issue by, uh, various different people, but this is just what I said at the time. And I'm just want to see, I just 
because I'm going to quote what the report says, but this is what he said at the time. No, 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 this is important. A journalist said the Financial Times made that. It was about interfering with the people whose job it is to do that. The email ended with, we need to review this. So, That's interference. So that email was presented as something which made the opposite case of what it was saying. Now, the point about interference is very, very important, by the way. Because what happened when uh, the last General Secretary resigned, there was an interregnum where there was no General Secretary in place. During that time... Briefly, I mean, Just quickly, members yeah. of those Labour staff emailed the Labour leadership asking for assistance. They then complained about interference ha- from the Labour leadership, which, which is what they themselves had requested during that period. Now, I think... The phrase, w- we need to review this, come on, you know that's interference. Uh, so, but the point I'm making is those Labour staff requested assistance during that period. I understand Now, that. what's happened, and this is why it's so important to have an independent process, just quickly, is that it ha- there has been improvements. They've doubled the number of disciplinary staff and they've increased the disciplinary cases fourfold. So, uh, okay, this was annoying because I got a lot of... <laughs> me and Ash Sarko got yelled at gen- literally over that. What it said in the report, during the spring of 2018, Lotto staff provided input on some anti-Semitism cases after it was sought, sometimes insistently by HQ staff, who refused to proceed until they had it. We find that Lotto staff responded to the request, for the most part, in reasonably good faith. We note their responses were subsequently used to form the basis of wholly misleading media reports, which suggested that Lotto staff had aggressively imposed themselves on the process against HQ's wishes. Based on the evidence we have seen, however, we consider that the narrative put forward in relation, in particular, uh, to in particular the March to April 2018 emails, so that's the interregnum period I was talking about in that interview when... Um, uh, the old Ian McNichol, who was opposed to Corbyn, was replaced by Jenny Formby, who supported Corbyn. Uh, those emails were partially misleading. In our view, it's entirely misleading to imply these emails in themselves were evidence of those lot of staff members inserting themselves unbidden into the disciplinary process for factional reasons. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Sorry, I'm sorry, expand. What it's just it's, it's so frustrating. I just I just want your general thoughts on that. Well, actually, the, the narrative Ford, at the time. The Ford report is more even more specific than that because it talks about the email that you were talking about in that clip, which is an email from Seamus Milne, um, where where he was selectively quoted by Panorama to make it look like he was interfering in, in the disciplinary process. When in actual fact, as you said, he was making completely op- the opposite point. And the Ford report actually talks about that email. And it's the case of Lynn Secker, Secker who was suspended, who was a Jewish activist. Um, and Seamus gave his, his views to the Glustaf on request, um, I think. And, uh, and it says that what he said was reasonable. So there's complete vindication for, for Seamus in that instance, but also um, for the whole the whole dynamic of that that period and that um, incident, which is the key thing. And the reason why this is important, because it may seem like it's just, um, you know, bureaucratic uh, conflict or whatever. But the reason why it's important is because no nobody sensible denies that there was a there were there was anti-Semitism among Labour members um, to some extent and that it was an issue that needed to be dealt with. But that's not what Labour was accused of. That's not what Corbyn was accused of. The, the accusation was that it was uh, pervasive within the Labour Party and that crucially, the leadership was intervening in things on the side of effectively on the side of anti-Semites or on the, to, to stop things being done about it. And the, the crucial evidence, and this was when Panorama came on, for example, uh, it was about the documentary evidence. It was about things like leaked emails, like this email from Seamus. The, the crucial point was, look, we have this period when um, Jeremy Corbyn's office was intervening in anti-Semitism complaints 
and we have documentary evidence. Now that's just been completely uh, blown out the water by first of all the leaked report, which you know it's 860 pages or something a leaked report. All of this stuff you can read in full, um, and now by Ford, who has concluded that in actual fact it was it was the staff in HQ under you know the, well, while the general sector is changing as you said, but the old staff who were requesting assistance from the leader's office and the assistance that the leader's office then gave was, according to Ford, uh, reasonable and given in good faith. And uh, there wasn't an attempt, as he says, to aggressively impose the leadership's will on the disciplinary processes, mm-hmm. which um, if you actually read all the stuff that's come out, if you read, for example, the Equality and Human Rights Report in terms of semitism and the Labour Party, if you read it closely, you can see that often what they decry as interference in anti-Semitism processes was the leadership arguing for things to speed up? Was the leadership saying, you know, why hasn't anything been done about this? What's going on with this case, et cetera? Um, which obviously then gets completely forgotten in the mainstream narrative. Um, but that's that's really crucial because that's the central allegation. And in response, I think it's quite interesting that in, in the report, what was um, a document-based case by, you know, these former staffers, like we have the emails, look, look at what we've got, we've leaked them to the press, et cetera, has now become... Their claim is now, well, we, we got pressure offline, we got pressure verbally. Um, and when we were asking for the leader's office to give us advice, we were just trying to flush them out. We were trying to sh- get them to put in writing what they were telling us verbally. Well, um, there's no, I mean, there's no evidence of that. That's just the claim that they said. And I note that on, on plenty of other things, um, Ford finds that the evidence he received from those same staffers is is not credible, who rejects it. Um, so, um, so that, I, I think that's, very the panorama program remember was very important but it was only the culmination of a long media campaign that was waged through various leaks and uh, stories in the mainstream press over a long period you know from 2018 from mid 2018 um to to basically nail the leadership on this point the leadership intervened in these cases and now we know that while um you know there may be some isolated examples that um that are that are worthy of criticism in the main that wasn't happening um i should also say and i think this is really important to say that the fraud report really does vindicate those who wrote the leaked report well, not, it, well it, I mean, not according to paul war remember because paul war quoted the section where it where it congratulates the authors of the leaked report and and managed to make it look as if it was criticizing them Paul War, for those who don't know, is the uh, political correspondent at the I newspaper who shared a thread which began uh, began with the Labour Party's official um, response, which was that those arguing that the right had tried to sabotage Labour's election chances were engaged in a conspiracy theory, but tweeted it, it didn't even quote, it was just a lot like he was just stating that's that was a fact. And then that's how he started the thread. It was framed in those terms. It is really important to say they were vindicated. <laughs> and the report makes it clear, for example, that they they take anti-Semitism um, very, very seriously and, 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 and did so throughout the report. And we're not in, attempting to do anything other than that. And I really think those who wrote the leaked report should go down in history as truth tellers, as whistleblowers, uh, as people of huge moral courage um, who, who have helped to expose truth. Just finally, because I'm going to bring in Rachel Shabby. I guess... <laughs> Where what does it tell us about the current Labour Party? Because let's be honest with you, the people t- we're talking about these people have won. Okay, the the baddies have won. You know, like in the film Ghost, where the baddies die and they get dragged off by demons. We're talking about these people. Um, they are they are the bad guys, and they have won. Isn't that doesn't that it's kind of depressing, isn't it? Because we can talk about this, and a lot of people would be watching or listening to this, nodding in agreement, but they're counting on the fact the media don't care. They're counting on the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, through what, however devious and nasty their taxi have been, they've won. And a lot of people might just think, where's where's any hope? Um, well, I mean, they have won and it is depressing and the world is depressing. So there's no point in pretending otherwise. But um, it is important, I think, to have it when, you know, when history, the phrase, the cliche phrase, when the history books are written, when this stuff is documented, when the Corbyn leadership is looked back on, because remember, the Corbyn leadership was such a historical aberration, such an unusual thing to happen for the left of the Labour Party to take leadership of, the, of uh, one of the you know two main parties in Britain. Um, when that is analysed, we need this stuff to be represented accurately and for the story to be told as it was and for it not to be 
um, for us not to be, for the left in general, not to be forever um, written off as, you know, crazy racists who messed everything up. The, the importance of this is that it vindicates, the importance of Ford is it vindicates the leaked report, which provides all the documentary evidence um, of what was actually happening. And I think, it, you know, it's Peter Abel wrote it's most, uh, the leaked report's the most detailed um, analysis of the internal workings of a party ever produced because it's so long. I mean, it is, it really is. So, so this stuff is important because if the left ever gets another chance in the Labour Party, it might not, but if it does, um, we need to we need to know what's going to happen, and we need to be able to um, point to examples of success such as 2017, when Labour surged from uh, from nowhere to nearly winning on a platform of um, radical social democracy with some socialist elements, um, and that's not supposed to be possible. Now, they're trying to write out 2017. They're trying to only concentrate on 2019. 2017 doesn't exist. They'd rather you know, expunge it from the historical record completely and just drown it in all this other, all the other criticisms of the Corbyn period. And so even if it's painstaking, even if it feels like it's hopeless, just chipping away at that so that we can still retain this, this example of something extraordinary happening, which can be built on and which should be built on and which offers a different way um, to to win politically, but also a different future for people in this country. That is, well, I mean, whether it's worth doing is something we have to do. Alex, thank you so much for your time, your insight. Uh, fascinating, bleak, but fascinating uh, stuff. And um, obviously, and lots of you, I'm sure, follow Alex Nuns on Twitter. But if you oh, can, I also just say, I'm writing a yeah. book on sabotage, and a lot of this will be in it. <laughs> oh, great. Well, everyone, go and pre-order that. Can they pre-order it? Yeah, they can. Yeah, it's available. Right. Okay, so pre-order Sabotage by Alex Nuns and follow him on Twitter. Uh, cheers, Alex. Uh, really appreciate it. I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. So we're going to bring in now, uh, Rachel, I've left waiting. I'm such a disgrace. Honestly, Rachel, just sitting here waiting, listening to me babbling on. It is lovely to see you. How are you doing? Hello. It's great Hello. to see you too. Thanks for having me on. It is always an honour to have you on, Rachel, always. Likewise. Yeah, so... Um, Let's just, I mean, firstly, I just want your initial just take. What's your, were you surprised by the fraud report in that? Well, I suppose, I mean, as I said, I was just expecting a whitewash <laughs> and it wasn't a whitewash. Yeah, I guess it makes me think a little bit of the EHRC report in the sense that it's it's a lawyer, of, you know, Ford QC being very loyally. So it's quite, it's quite clean. It's quite sterile. You know, it's, it's a very, very close scrutiny Um and therefore comes across as quite um, detailed and objective in many ways. So, and, he, and he's clearly, um, you know, I think he's clearly sounding the alarm on several things, saying, look, this is completely dysfunctional. This party is dysfunctional because of factionism. You guys need to sort it out. But also this party really has a problem with racism, all racism. Um, you know, the submissions around racism were so copious that the report said, you know, we had so many um, comments about this that we actually put some in an annex as a representative sample. And it seems to me that the report is very clearly saying the party has to sort this out. You cannot be a progressive party that claims to be anti-discrimination and then manifest this kind of discrimination uh, of the sort that the report details. Yeah, so, I mean, in fact, you said, they say this ever on Twitter, the Ford report was clear about the shocking anti-black racism and Islamophobia that exists within Labour and at a senior level. It's dismal that this has generated so little attention, conveying that racism in politics is only treated as a problem when it's politically useful. The Ford report, as you said, have received so many experiences, they put a representative uh, sample, and the report found Labour's, in effect, operating a hierarchy of racism. So let's just have a little look at what the report actually says here. So in terms of anti-Semitism... It says it was, of course, also true that some opponents of Jeremy Corbyn saw the issue of anti-Semitism as a means of attacking him. Thus, rather than confront the paramount need to deal with a profoundly serious issue of anti-Semitism in the party, both factions treated it as a factional weapon. That's not to say that taking sides is always wrong, but rather that the taking of sides should be based upon reason and should not be motivated by blind loyalty or irrational entrenched opposition to a member or leader of a perceived tribe. What, what's your take on what it's saying there? So I think it's really important to acknowledge that sometimes um, when Ford points out the factionalism, it's not a case of both sides in the issue. Um, as, as Alex was just talking about, there are instances where you could make that case 
where, you know, a democratically elected, twice democratically elected leader, Jerry, Jeremy Corbyn, who has a mandate um, from the membership, um, where his directives around an election are being undermined, that's, that's not really a both sides situation because one is an, a democratically elected and one are unelected officials acting in, in a way they see fit. But when it comes to issues around racism, I think it is fair to say that, and, and this, this comes up with other forms of racism as well, but it did, it did manifest very clearly with anti-Semitism, but there was a factionalism going on in the way that that played out. Um, yes, opponents of Jeremy Corbyn were um, using it. They were making a, a, a case of it um, because they were opponents of him. But equally, um, supporters of Jeremy Corbyn were engaging in denialism around the subject. And so the experience overall was to be caught in this sort of factional game between the two sides. It's, it's, it's interesting when I wrote a piece about um, anti-Black racism in the Labour Party for The Independent last year. Um, that was what came up quite often when I talked to people about that piece. So uh, whether it was staff members, um, MPs, councillors, party members, when they were talking about their experience of anti-Black racism and it not being taken seriously, it was almost like the reverse image of that, that they weren't taken seriously by the Starmer leadership because that was perceived as, you know, they're just making false claims of racism to undermine the Starmer leadership. So there's a there's a really direct parallel there and it's painful, it's frustrating, uh, and it's a terrible way to treat racism. And I should say as well, the leaked report, which I keep referring to uh, in terms of what the authors wrote, did say explicitly they wanted to take on those who were in denial about these Yeah. So I think that's a really important point, because what the Ford report makes very clear is that they weren't they weren't writing this report to downplay anti-Semitism at all. Um, they very clearly stated, and I think that you're right, that they should be commended as whistleblowers. Um, they very clearly said, look, no, there is a real problem. Anyone who says this is a smear or which has got it absolutely wrong. And Ford himself acknowledges that. So he acknowledges them for saying it and acknowledges that their motivations were not to downplay anti-Semitism. I think that's a really important point in the context of the awful, if there is any media debate around this, which honestly the silence is deafening right now, it has been very much, oh, these people have, have got an agenda. You, you mentioned, of course, the hierarchy of racism on Twitter. So let's just see what it says in terms of hierarchy of racism. So submissions have been made suggestive of manipulation of process um, along factional lines, marginalization of those with protected characteristics, characteristics opacity, I think I'll say that right, of procedures and a perceived hierarchy of engagement with different protected characteristics. At first, participants in our roundtable were agreed that anti-Semitism education should not be divorced from that on all forms of racism and that such training should be based on an ethical stance that any form of racism is simply wrong morally. Anti-Semitism does need specific treatment, but it should also be integrated within a broader program of anti-racism education. We endorse this view. While the action plan agreed with the HRC covers all protected characteristics, there is a real danger, if less emphasis is placed on these, that this could be seen as establishing a new hierarchy of racism that some would argue replaces a previous hierarchy that did not take anti-Semitism sufficiently seriously. So what's your take on that? Because I know that's you, you, you wrote about that on Twitter. What's, what's your kind of expanded thoughts on it? I mean, it's absolutely toxic. And I want to acknowledge as well, um, and this came up when I was um, interviewing people around anti-Black racism, also Islamophobia, both in the Labour Party, both for um, the Independent. And I, and I want to just say, by the way, in this deafening silence, um, over the last few years of writing about Corbyn, the Independent has been more receptive than other newspapers in terms mm. of engaging on this. And I don't think that's because the editors there are particularly pro-Corbyn, not, not at all. I think they're just genuinely more pluralistic and more curious. Um, and when I wrote that piece about anti-Black racism, just, just as an example of, you know, there is a, high, there is a higher bar when it comes to anti-Black racism and Islamophobia, there is a higher bar, and this is something that um, Muslim people and Black people of colour say all the time. So I remember speaking with an editor at another newspaper and, and they were saying, well, how will we prove that? How will we prove that this is going on? And, and I said, well, you know, we'll prove it in the same way that we proved anti-Semitism was going on in the Labour Party. We'll talk to people and we'll hear what they have to say about it. So that seemed to me 
quite odd. And it's also worth pointing out in, quite odd is an understatement. It's also worth pointing out that in the annex where, in the Ford report, where people are, you know, it's a, it's a sample of people of color who submitted comments to the, the inquiry. And it's important, I think, to say that when they, how difficult it would be to mention this hierarchy of racism or the feeling that that is going on in the party because of, there would be this huge sort of tendency of bad faith analysis to misconstrue that as, oh, what are you saying? Are we saying we shouldn't pay attention to anti-Semitism? And certainly when I interviewed people for those articles for The Independent, people were very, very clear. Obviously, anti-Semitism should be treated, you know, as a problem, it needs to be resolved. It's just that at the same time, you know, anti-Black racism and Islamophobia is being marginalized in and in in it's really toxic. And that and that effect of that is really, really divisive. I mean, obviously, on its face, it's it's disgusting, it's unprincipled, it's morally just wrong to operate that system. At the same time, the end result is that it's incredibly toxic and poisonous. Um, and I, I think it's important to, to point out as well that when we look at the trajectory of the last seven years, so Corbyn plus Starmer, um, and everyone is responsible for this. You know, Corbyn needs to take responsibility. Uh, the MPs that try to undermine him in the party need to take responsibility. Starmer needs to take responsibility. The outcome of um, the way anti-Semitism played out in our media and political conversation is that there is now more confusion and less understanding about anti-Semitism in a society that already doesn't really get this issue at all. Mm. There has been a marginalization of other racism, of anti-Black racism, of Islamophobia, both in the Labour Party and in society in la at large and also in Conservative Party and in policy, i.e. most overtly with Windrush and the Windrush scandal. And it's also become very, very difficult. There's been a chilling effect on discussing Palestine. And that's at a time when obviously Israel's operating a brutal military occupation, which has been discussed by, described by several international human rights organizations as uh, apartheid, because that's what it looks like. That's how it operates on the ground. So what this says to me, looking at, at that, mess is that if we want to be, you know, if we want to build an anti-racist movement or try and rebuild one from this hot mess that is genuinely intersectional, progressive, um, values-driven, fighting all racism, I don't think that the Labour Party is a site for that. And I'm hearing more people say that as well, you know, because it's, it's making things worse. It has made things worse. It has disrupted any possibility of solidarity or mm -hmm. sort of intersectional understanding of these dynamics. Yeah, I mean, just finally, where now, I suppose. I mean, I just think in terms of, we talk about, you know, Islamophobia, for example, during the Batley and Spen election, by-election, which Labour narrowly kept, um, we all know George Galloway is a, is, is a toxic charlatan, but, but Labour's own campaign, I mean, they said afterwards, after they lost a lot of Muslim voters, who were obviously so angry and dissatisfied, they voted for George Galloway, they said they basically built a new, this was a Labour campaign source, basically built a new electoral coalition in six weeks, lost the Conservative Muslim vote over gay rights in Palestine, and won back a load of 2019 voters. Okay, the point about, I went to Batlin's Ben, and I spoke to huge numbers of Labour campuses. No Muslim voter mentioned gay rights. None. The idea that Muslim voters who were voting for Labour when they were introducing a raft of legislation supporting gay rights, equalising the age of consent, um, uh, for example, uh, getting rid of Section 28, um, introducing anti, you know, Muslim voters were voting for Labour under that. I mean, it's not like Labour now waving the rainbow flag about. Uh, they can barely even, you know, look at the, you know, on trans rights, let alone anything else. Just a load of bollocks. Okay. It was bollocks. But they were using the stigmatizing stuff to go, basically, the Muslims are a load of bigots and that's why we lost them. And this, that is an exact. So where, where do we go from now? Because these are the people in charge of the Labour Party. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that that was absolutely awful race baiting, but also just, you know, playing off um, one minority against another in the most disgusting way. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of thing you'd expect the right wing to do. To see a Labour Party do that is so obnoxious and so toxic. And um, I did a piece looking at the Red Wall, um, the so-called Red Wall, and how um, Labour is losing Muslim voters in those areas where actually... Muslim populations are the size of the marginality of those seats. So it's 
pretty significant. But the, the, the despair there, so I was in Dewsbury and Batley, and the despair, everybody heard that. Everybody heard what that meant of you're accusing us, you're saying that we're bigots and the wider coalition is, you know, in society, so we're not part of society. Everybody heard that. And so the level of despair is just so, so huge at the moment. And I know, you know, other journalists are doing a great work of this, Taj Ali, Nadine White, um, just reporting the extent to which um, minorities just don't know where to go now because Labour isn't seen as a home for them. And, you know, the Ford report is very clear about this. It's very clear about a culture of racism in the Labour Party. It does say, look, when you look at those comments and, you know, you and Alex were talking about just really just disgusting racism on those WhatsApp messages with senior party officials. And the Ford report makes very clear, look, these are not, you can't just write these off. There's no way. These are part of a culture. And you need to engage with the reality of having that culture and how that makes people of color feel and how you what a disservice you are doing to people of color, not just in terms of, you know, are you a party that's going to stand up for people of color, but also operationally inside the Labour Party? What is that like to be a member of staff operating in that party? And we we have um, in the annex people writing about how awful and alienating um, and disturbing it feels and just the the mental and emotional toll of having to deal with that on a daily basis in your workplace. So the, the Ford report is very clear that this is a cultural problem inside labor and it needs to get a handle on it. And so that's why, you know, this wall of silence from, from the media, just complete silence over the racism especially, is so, so frustrating because it, it, just, it just belies a kind of hypocrisy of, well, do you want to fight this stuff or do you only want to fight it or pretend to fight it when it's politically useful for you to do so? Um, and, that's, and that's the test. So you know, is it too much to ask of the Labour leadership to just be consistent? Um, the EHRC recommendations also made it clear. By the way, guys, this is good for anti dealing with anti-Semitism, but you can use this as a template for other racism as well. Um, it would be great if the leadership engaged with the reality of that. But also at the same time, I do think that we as you know, people who are you know, progressives and want to build uh, an anti a genuinely anti-racist movement, probably need to take that work outside the Labour Party because I don't think it's a functional site um, for this very important work to be carried out. Rachel, brilliant stuff as ever, as nuanced and thoughtful and thought-provoking as people would expect from Rachel Shabby. Do follow Rachel Shabby on Twitter, of course, if you're not doing so. Sort that out and read her brilliant work wherever it's published. Rachel, honestly, really, really appreciate your voice as ever. So thanks so much for joining us. And go and get some sun. It's quite sunny outside. So, I'm going to go and sit in the sun. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to chat with you, as always. Always. All right. Lots of love, Rachel. Speak Take to you care. soon. Take care. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Um, just quickly, I'm going to go through Super Chats very quickly because we've had lots of them. Thanks to Woody Woodpecker. Thanks to David Barata, who asked, um, basically, could the police get involved? Um, probably not, alas. A lot of things are wrong in the world without being illegal. Um, but how do we get rid of the Labour right from the Labour Party? Answers on the postcard, everyone. Because at the moment, they've taken it over by being very duplicitous and positioning a candidate in the Labour Labour leadership election. He pretended to be left-wing and obviously is not. And Hayfield asked if the Electoral Commission could get involved. I think, I mean, to be honest, if it could be, it would have been by now. So, alas. Uh, thanks for in the driver's seat. Thanks for freely speaking. He says their democratic rights as a party member have been impinged, impringed upon, which they have. Thanks to MR Reader. Is there any grounds for legal action in relation to Panorama? Any basis after the report? Well, people will remember, of course, that Labour paid out to, um, Panora to John Ware, the, who made the Panorama programme. Uh, many felt that Labour had a good chance of winning the libel action taken um, against... Uh, the Labour Party by John Ware, but the Labour Party, alas, settled. Um, thank you to uh, Tad Cantwell, whose comment I should have written down and I didn't. Tad, please forgive me. <laughs> oh, I was about to click. It was still there. It's vanished. Tad, whatever you said, I flashed it up and it was a brilliant comment because it always is. 
Rita Mali says, congratulations to the brilliant Pfizer Shaheen who's been selected as Labour's candidate for Chingford and Woodford Green is going to get IDS out. A huge victory for the left. Really important to make that point because, to be honest with you, the Labour Party machine has done everything it can to stop left-wing candidates getting selected. Pfizer is so, 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 so popular that even the Labour machine couldn't stop her from being selected. I bet they are livid, but she's a brilliant candidate. Also one of the only ethnic minority candidates to be selected in the last, I think, 25 selections. I thought there's only one other. The fact that there are now people hounding on Twitter, a load of disproportionately white men hounding a woman of colour who got selected against the against multiple odds, uh, I think is pretty revealing and damning, if I must say so myself. But Pfizer Shaheen is a bright, bright light in a pretty grim period. Um, and people should campaign for her, obviously, uh, when the next election comes. Could be leader of the Labour Party one day. Oh, I probably shouldn't say that. I'll encourage people to purge you or something. Um, thanks again, obviously, to Rachel um, and to Alex, both of whom brilliant. I hope you all learned a lot from that. I certainly did. I just want to end quickly. Uh, I bet be quick, actually, because I'm going to get in trouble, I've just realised. Um, just quickly, monkeypox. I just want to say something about monkeypox. I'm going to write about this this week. Um, I say this as a gay man. Oh, for those who didn't know, just outed myself. I think you probably knew. Um, monkeypox at the moment has been declared a... Um, a emergency health, uh, international, sorry, emergency by the World Health Organization. Um, now, I think it's really important that we discuss this uh, carefully because it is overwhelmingly, and I think the evidence shows 98% of cases, uh, it's men who have sex with men. And in almost all cases, it's through sexual contact. And there were some who were fearful that talking about that could sound bigoted or lead to stigma and are rejecting the idea it's actually overwhelmingly much men who have sex with men and are suggesting it's actually because that community is far more likely to be tested given obviously our history with HIV AIDS. Um, now actually the evidence shows that even if you take into account sampling bias it's overwhelmingly men who have sex with men that monkeypox is spreading and in fact close non-sexual contacts of monkeypox are not getting monkeypox. Um, and in fact, the government has told originally the advice was to self-isolate if you were a close contact to someone with monkeypox. They've dropped that because they're not getting it because it's overwhelmingly through sexual contact. Now, you know, I, the reason I think it's important to talk about this is the homophobia we should be talking about is the lack of a proper health response, a swift enough health response and a vaccine rollout that is swift enough because the community affected are men who have sex with men overwhelmingly, almost exclusively. Um, and... We have there are some I fear, uh, you know, who worry because of the spectre, the shadow cast by HIV, that this will lead to the stigmatizing of men who have sex with men. And obviously, it's important to balance targeted messaging with messaging that isn't stigmatized. Again, the issue with HIV AIDS is in the West, it was overwhelmingly and is overwhelmingly an illness that disproportionately affects men who have sex with men. And, you know, some sometimes point to 2020 when slightly more straight people were diagnosed with HIV than gay people as evidence of, well, you know, that's problematic framing. But obviously there are far, 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 far more straight people than gay people. So the percentage of straight people vis-a-vis -vis gay people newly infected with HIV, obviously far higher proportion of, of gay and bisexual men than straight people. And of those straight people who are being diagnosed with HIV, it's actually, again, overwhelmingly specific groups, e.g. straight African migrants. Now, that needs tailored messaging that isn't stigmatized as well. But we do need to talk about this because, it, you know, it's a live discussion, as I know, amongst LGBTQ people, men, um, um, uh, within, you know, queer people, within um, urban centers, because I have friends who've had monkeypox. I got my monkeypox vaccine last week. I was lucky. Lots of people are struggling to get it. But it, it, it is something we need to talk about properly and in a mature and healthy way. Because the knee-jerk response of some is by talking about it as a an illness which is overwhelmingly spread as sexual through sexual contact amongst men who have sex with men, is that that's somehow feeding homophobic tropes and will lead to homophobic violence. You know, the problem with HIV messaging in the 80s wasn't that it was targeted, it needed to be targeted, it was stigmatized. Uh, and you got these horrendous adverts often, which just helped fuel that stigmatization. So I just think, you know, the reason I talk about this is because it's obviously LGBTQ rights is something very, I care very passionately about. And I just think there's a wrong-headed response by some who are just any kind of sense of this is an illness which is affecting our community and talking about it that way is somehow stigmatizing. It is if the messaging is stigmatizing, finger wagging it, oh, stop having sex and all the rest of it if you're a gay or bisexual man. 
That's a problem. That's stigmatizing and it won't work. People will still have sex with each other. But, so what we should be calling for <clears throat> is swift vaccine rollout, particularly, for example, outside of London in the UK. Um, you know, there was someone saying, well, you know, where, you know, I've seen in America when this, when the schools open, it'll run rampant amongst school children. Well, the evidence doesn't seem to suggest that will happen because otherwise close contacts of people with monkeypox would be getting it and they're not. It overwhelmingly happens through sexual contacts, not through intercourse, for example, that's or, or other forms of, you know, which you could protect yourself with a condom, but by prolonged skin on skin contact of a form that normally happens um, during sex. And it has managed to, obviously no virus knows the sexuality of its host, but it's got into pools of people who like to have and enjoy having sex with multiple partners. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Sex is great. People should do it. But we need to talk about it, this as in a, in a healthy way. And that's why I've just said it. I hope, I hope that makes sense. It's just something on my, in my brain at the moment. Um, and I've just saw the World Health Organization getting dogpiled for pointing out this is affecting men who have sex with men as being homophobic. It isn't, guys. Just pl It's like looking for homophobia where it doesn't exist to obscure where it does <laughs> because the homophobia is that the response isn't quick enough because of who it overwhelmingly affects. Not that's saying it overwhelmingly affects men who have sex with men is, is the problem. Anyway, uh, Owen promoting promiscuity uh, complains horsebox in the comments. Yes, be as promiscuous as you want. Just be, obviously, do safer sex, use condoms, prep, for example, if you're, uh, if you're, uh, for example, gay or a trans woman or other communities who are affected disproportionately by HIV. But yeah, what's wrong with, what's wrong with being promiscuous? As long as you do it in a healthy way, you're not breaking, hurting each other's feelings, you're using the protections you can, you're making informed choices, treat yourself. What a way to end the show. Um... Okay, everyone, lots of love. We've got lots coming up. Um, I think I'm going to have to pre-record the show for next Sunday because you may know Matt Zarb Cousin, the brilliant, um, uh, it's lots of things. He used to work for Jamie Corbyn as a spokesperson, but it was also a campaign against um, gambling addiction. And he's getting married next week. So I'm going to his wedding along with half the British left. So we'll work something out. We've got lots of interviews coming up. Um, yeah, lots of love, everyone. I am... I'm going to wrap it up there. We will see you in the week somehow. Speak to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars. That'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.